you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to, uh, to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. Um, many of you know we're, we're currently, we're in a series titled Church. So uh, by the name of the series, I hope you can understand what we're going to be talking about. We were talking about just life in the church. Things are taking place in the church. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how do we make disciples. We've talked about the importance of table groups, a way that we intentionally come together to serve and to build each other up. Last week, we talked about how this fall, we're starting discipleship training classes, um, classes that are geared to help build us up in our knowledge and our love for Christ, that we would be better equipped uh, to serve not only here within these walls, but also outside in our community. Starting today and for the next couple of weeks, uh, we're actually going to be looking at the leadership offices in the church. So things like deacons and elders, and elders are given the responsibility for the, for the preaching to the church, for the caring, for the protecting of the church. And as we've t- talked about a little bit already, and as Cliff has demonstrated uh, only in his time here, uh, but deacons are responsible for meeting the physical needs of the church. So it could be things like, like the building and providing a place for us to, to worship or, or meeting physical needs, like coming alongside and providing meals and other things uh, for when the church is hurting. Both positions are immensely important within the church. And today we're going to be focusing on deacons. The next couple of weeks we'll be looking at elders. Um, here at Timberline, we have several different deacon positions at the moment, and, it, and it's a list that will continue to grow. Uh, we have a deacon of communion, deacon of kitchen, deacon of worship, deacon of missions, and as you see today, a deacon of facilities, which I'm really excited. We've needed a deacon of facilities for a while. Uh, So if you've known, we just kind of call people all the time saying, hey, can you help here, help here? And uh, so Cliff is just really gifted. So I'm super excited that he's coming on for that now. Um, So we're going to be talking about deacons today, and we're talking about the fact that they're specifically called to serve the church. Um, But to be clear, every Christian is saved and called to build up the body of Christ. Deacons are simply those who are officially recognized by the church. They they help the larger body together serve one another. They set an example for us. They're kind of leading as servants within the church. And so today the title is A Heart of a Deacon. And I want us to see what drives and what motivates a deacon And I realize that that not all of us will be deacons, um, but regardless of whether we become a deacon or not, I pray that we would all have just the heart of a deacon. And so, in fact, the passage that we're looking at today is not even written to deacons. Peter is writing it to the church. And so, largely, I'm just going to be talking to us as Christians, and at the end of the message, we'll specifically apply this to how does it look towards deacons. Uh, But the main point today is that deacons are empowered by God to build up the church for the very glory of God. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. And what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 together. We stand here at the reading of God's word each week uh, because we want to remind ourselves that God's word comes to us by the Spirit with the full authority of God for the purpose of equipping us and encouraging us to walk the Christian life. So starting in verse 7 of chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Join me as we pray. And Father, we, we come to you now specifically uh, to your word, to the word that you have given us, to the word that you have inspired the apostles to write for the purpose of the building up of your church. And Lord, specifically, we look at your word today where you are giving us instruction, where you are sharing with us your will for Christians to live a godly life. And so, God, I pray that we would, we would accurately, we would understand what it looks like to live a life of godliness. Give us wisdom as we look at the Christian life and grant us strength and desire that we would live lives that please you. May we realize that your spirit is in us, has sealed us for the day that you return, and equips us and strengthens us every single day that we would use the gifts that you've given us for the purpose of encouraging one another, building one another up so that you would be glorified. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of deacons. We thank you for the deacons that we have and the deacons that we will have in the future. And, Father, once again, I ask that we would all have the heart of a deacon, that we would desire to serve one another with every breath that we have. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. The first thing I just want us to see is, as we come into this passage is that Peter says that we're in the last days. That's what he means when he says the end of all things is at hand. And the New Testament speaks upon the fact that upon the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, where he's, um, where he's in heaven right now, that we are in the last days. This means we can expect Christ to return at any moment. Now, as soon as we start talking about the last days, uh, our minds can be filled with many thoughts and many images. There are times, um, there have been many books that have been written, there have been movies that have made about the end days. I thought about going through a list of those, but I don't think that's necessary. Perhaps you think of people with, with tin foil on their heads, or, or those standing on street corners with cardboard signs saying, the end is near. Maybe, maybe you think of those who are stockpiling water and supplies, or those who abandon morality and, and begin looting and stealing, and they seek to just satisfy every desire that they have. In fact, verse 3, Peter describes and characterizes the life of unbelievers. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. He says, you're safe. No longer do you live like that. We're coming to the end. This is how we live. And so he says, no longer do we live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Peter wants us to to know that no longer do we pursue a life of sinfulness, a life of self-serving and pleasure-seeking. We don't seek to satisfy our immediate appetites and pleasures, but rather in our passage today, Peter wants us to know that because we know Christ is coming, we live what, what could be considered quite a radical life. And so to set the stage, I want us to, to understand just kind of the lens in which Peter is writing from. I want us to understand what he is saying in his letters so that we would know why he calls us to live in a certain way. So if you were to go back in chapter 2, verse 11, 
Peter says that upon believing in Christ, Christians have become exiles and strangers here on earth. Peter wants us to know that as Christians, our citizenship is not here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. This means we're not anxious, we're not fanatic at the passing away of this world. Our hopes and our dreams are not caught up in the things of this world. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he says this. He says that our inheritance, the Christian's inheritance, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. So what he wants us to know is that everything that we treasure as Christians and is in heaven and is guarded by the very power of God. Do you get that? Like everything we treasure. If you're a Christian, then the things that are most precious to us are tied up in Christ. Which means that no longer are we, we don't have to be fanatical about the things that take place here on this earth. Our salvation is secure in Christ and therefore we think differently than unbelievers. Our lives are lived differently. We live like Christ. In fact, Paul, or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says that Christ has left us an example so that we might follow in his footsteps. So he wants us to know we're different in this world. We're exiles. We're strangers. We've been given an imperishable, unfading inheritance, and now we live like Christ. And before we go on, first and foremost, it's important that before we live like Christ, Christ must be our Redeemer. He must be our Savior. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came from heaven, died on a cross, rose victorious three days later, and he saves us by his grace. Scripture says he is the way, the truth, and life. There's no other way to come to the Father but through the grace of Jesus. We do not earn our salvation. And it's only after we know Jesus as our King, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, that then he can be our example. We cannot confuse the order. The world has no problem in saying Jesus is a good example. He lived a good moral life. Yes, it's not a bad idea to live like Christ. But the world will deny that he's our savior every single moment. The only way we truly live like Christ is once we first believe in Christ as our savior. And so what does it then look like to live like Christ? One of the first things we would ask is, what did Christ live like? What was Jesus' goal here on earth? And we could look all throughout the Bible in John 17, before Jesus is going to be arrested, before he goes to the cross, he gives what we call this priestly prayer. And so in John 17, he gives this prayer, and he begins it by saying, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The goal of everything that Jesus did was to glorify God. And that's what Peter wants us to see also. We see that in verse 11. If you go down to verse 11 of our passage, it actually says that our lives and everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The goal of the Christian life is to glorify God. The gospel is about Jesus Christ rescuing us, rescuing us from living for finite, trivial, worldly pleasures to being brought into the kingdom of God where we would live for God's glory and enjoy him forevermore. That's the heart of a Christian. The Christian loves, desires, and enjoys God's glory above everything else. 
So that sets the stage for what Peter has said, what he's communicating. So now we come back to verse 7 and we say, so what does that mean then for a Christian to live a godly life? For a Christian, one who, whose treasure is in heaven, one who loves the glory of God, wants Christ to be magnified in everything that he does, how do we live? Or to ask it this way, what does our faith in Christ look like lived out here on earth? If someone came to you and said, so what does it look like to be a Christian? You could use this passage. Or if somebody say, hey, what is God's will for a Christian? You could read this passage because at the end of verse 2, we read that Peter is writing about the very will of God. He's describing what is God's will for the Christian life. So if you've ever been here and you say, man, I just wish I knew God's will. This is God's will for your life. Not all of it, but certainly if we walk out of here today knowing these four instructions that Peter has given us, we'll walk in accordance to the very way that God has called us to walk. And so what we're going to do is walk through these four instructions. Number one, Peter says that we are to be controlled and clear-minded. We see this in verse 7 where he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Earlier I said that as Christians, we're, we're supposed to think differently. Peter's point is that as Christians, we're, we're not reckless. We're not drunk on alcohol. We're not high on drugs. We're not numb because we stare into a digital screen at all times of the day. Hope not. We're not caught up in a frenzy because of what we hear on TV or read on the internet. The news channels do not control our emotional and mental state. Why? Our citizenship is in heaven. Christ is king. We know that he's in control. Therefore, we are sober-minded and self-controlled. Because Jesus is our king and savior, we know that he is guiding and ruling all things. And earlier in, in Peter's letter, he's told us what it means to live a sober-minded life. In chapter 1, verse 13, if you just go back a couple pages, this is what Peter says. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so notice those words. Set your hope fully on the grace the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your heart, set your minds, focus on the grace that is coming to us for when Christ returns. Our minds are set on Christ, our Savior, the one who conquered the grave. And we see this all throughout the New Testament that the writers are calling us, fixate your hearts and your minds on Christ. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 this is how, how Paul begins to write that. And just so you know, I'll probably get Paul and Peter, their names confused throughout the entire sermon. So just know what I mean, not what I say at times. But this one is Paul, Colossians 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. So seek the things that are above. What are those things? Where Christ is. Where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things things. To set our minds on things above is to fixate them on the rule and throne of Christ. To know that he is in control. To know that Christ is our treasure. And one of the things that we do every week when we gather at a time like this 
is we are encouraging one another and reminding each other that because of the gospel, we have been saved by Christ. We have a new citizenship, and our king is in heaven ruling over all things. So, so one thing we do at a time when we gather as believer is remind ourselves of our very identity in Christ. We're fixating our eyes on Christ. Another thing that we do is as we study God's word on a daily basis, we're reminding ourselves of the truth of who God is, of what he has done for us. Every day that we're in the word, we're reorienting, refocusing, refixating our eyes on Christ. And we do so that we grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him and our affection for him. Think of it like this. When, when you first get married, you know things about your spouse, Right? And it's, it's often those very things that's why you love them. But you certainly don't know everything about them. But as you live the next 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and 40 years, you begin to learn a lot more things about your spouse. You know what, um, what makes them upset. In fact, sometimes you are the very reason they're upset. And you know all the ways that you do that. You know the things that please them. You know many, many more things about them. And as you grow in your knowledge of them, what happens? You grow in your affection for them, your love for them, your desire to please them and knowing how to please them. Very same thing as we fixate our eyes on Christ. We grow in our desire of him, our knowledge of him, what it means to live a life that pleases him. So we'll begin to ask questions like, how do I live in such a way that shows others the love of Christ? How do I love my wife or my husband in a way that honors Christ? How do I go to work in such a way that honors Christ? How do I watch TV and I surf the internet in such a way that shows that my love is for Christ above all things? How do I come to church in such a way that I'm here to show others that Christ is supreme above everything else? And at the end of verse 7, notice the application that Peter gives us. Sober-mindedness makes us effective in our prayers. I think sometimes one of the reasons we're not very effective in our prayers is we're not fixated on Christ. We don't know what to pray for. We're caught up in the world, and so our minds are in a frenzy, and we're not exactly sure how to pray. But one thing Peter wants us to know is that as we fixate our eyes on Christ, as we're sober-minded, live controlled lives, we know how to pray. In fact, if you, think, if you think about this, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in the Gospels. In, in John 16, 23, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. When we're fixated on Christ, and we come to the Father in the name of Christ, and our desire is that Christ will be glorified in everything, we know that we're praying according to the Father's will. So Peter's first point is that as Christians, we're not reckless. We're not caught up in selfish pursuits. Rather, we live clear, sober-minded lives intentionally for the glory of God. Number two, we love persistently. In verse eight, Peter says, above all, so kind of like, and most important, keep loving one another earnestly. To love earnestly is to be persistent in our love. And all throughout the New Testament, we see Christians are to be known for our love. We've preached on this many, many times. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, love the brotherhood. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, by this, 
All people will know that you are my disciples. So he's going to say, this is a clear, distinguishing mark of a believer if you have love for one another. Loving one another as Christ loved us is the natural outworking of your faith. If you ever want to know, what is God's will for me today? Love others. Love those you encounter. But we don't love like the world loves. Like we don't look to the world and say, okay, so let me look and see how the world loves and that teaches me how to love. Rather, we come to God's word that we would look at Christ and we would live like Christ loves because in Matthew chapter five, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus tells us something pretty radical. He says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So there's worldly wisdom right there. Unbelievers do that, right? Love those who like you, love those who are convenient, but don't love those who are your enemy. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Remember, as Christians, our love reflects the love of Christ. In Romans 5, 8, we read this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Think about what that tells us about the love of God. Jesus did not come from heaven when we're all cleaned up, when we look good, when we have our nice clothes on and we're living these nice, righteous, godly lives. Rather, it's when we're sinemies, when we're, sin- when we're sinners, when we're enemies. I'm trying to combine those two words. It works. <laughs> Preachers can make up words all the time. It's in the job description. Sinemies. It's weird. Um, we love this way because we desire to please God more than man. Just think about that. The heart of a Christian is that God would be glorified. So we're not most concerned as we go throughout our day about making our name great. We're not primarily working to vie for, for greater influence, greater power, and greater prestige. Rather, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, think about this. This is what Peter says. In Christ... We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So so get this. This is what Peter's saying. In Christ, you have everything already. You don't need more power. You don't need more possessions. You don't need more worldly things. In Christ, you have everything. We belong to the everlasting God. What more could there be that we need? And so because we love like Christ, our goal is to advance his glory more than our glory. And that's why Peter will then say love covers a multitude of sins, which then makes us ask the question, am I easily offended? So you're supposed to ask yourself that now. Am I easily offended? Are you quick to speak and ready to defend yourself? You gotta think through the word as we read it. We don't just read it and walk away, but as we read, we're asking the Spirit to work through His Word that He would change us and mold us so we'd be more made into His image. Are we easily offended? Listen, it's when we're most concerned with our reputation and our comfort that we're easily offended and quick to react. So, is that you? I wanna remind you. Acts chapter 7, we read about the life of Stephen. Stephen 
was one of the first deacons appointed in the Jerusalem church. And we read that because of Stephen's faith in God, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, did not like him. And so they got kind of a mob of guys together where they made these accusations against Stephen. And one of those accusations was that he's blasphemed God. And the, the penalty of blasphemy is that you'd be killed. And so then they circle around Stephen and they pick up stones. And as they begin to throw rocks at him, listen to what Stephen says. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60, falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As Christians, we love our enemies and we're not easily offended. Now we might ask the question, well, how does love cover that kind of sin? How do we turn our cheek when, when that kind of violence is being displayed? And that's where we have to come back and go, the, the love that we have for one another is not man-made. The love that we have for one another comes from Christ himself. This is why, like, like in 1 John, 1 John is all about the love of God. In 1 John 4, 7, this is what, what we read. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. So he says, love one another because, because love comes from God. And then, and then notice what he says. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So the reason we love like God is because we know God and we've been made new. We've, we've experienced a new birth. Talking about our salvation. We've been born of God, so now we love like God. As Christians, we love like Christ because we've been born of God and he lives in us. So if you're wrestling with going, man, I just, there's no way I'm praying for the forgiveness of my enemies when they're throwing rocks at me. Like, I get that. In our worldly, selfish understanding of the way the world works, there's no way we're going to do that. Only through a supernatural means could that possibly take place. And that's exactly what happens because of our salvation. We're made new and Christ lives in us that now we would love in a very radical way. And it's our love for others that then distinguishes us from the way the world acts and loves. So as the hourglass gets closer to Christ's return, Christians are more zealous to show Christ's love. So that's number two. Number three, Peter says, and we are hospitable. There's no Motel 6, there's no Holiday Inn in the first century. Where people stay? Houses. People would open up their houses. All throughout the New Testament and since the first century, we see that, that Christians are called to open up their houses as a powerful means of demonstrating hospitality and loving other people. Peter says that we're to regularly open up our homes to friends and strangers, and we do this without grumbling. Which means we don't only do it when it's convenient and we don't only do it for those we like. But we open up our houses when it's sometimes inconvenient and sometimes when we're like, I don't know that I would normally allow this person in, but because of Christ and our desire to show the love for him above anything else, we allow people into our houses. We know that our houses have been given to us by God as a gift to demonstrate the love of Christ. Think about this. We currently live in a world where people are more connected than ever before, and yet people complain of being more lonely than ever before. Isn't that weird? More connected 
more digital connections and everything else. And some of those are real and some of those are good. And yet people regularly talk about, I'm more lonely than ever before. One solution is the Christian's house. In a world of loneliness, your house can very well be the means in which your neighbor, your coworker, a friend truly experiences the friendship and the grace of God. We don't practice hospitality only so we get to give the gospel and hopefully see people come to know Christ. That is definitely a motivation. We want people to come to Christ. But one commentator said, we practice hospitality because it's right. We practice hospitality because we are God's people. We share God's goodness through our home because God has shown his goodness to us. His grace overflows the threshold of our homes. Some of you ask, like, why do we do table groups not at the church? Like, why don't we just meet in the church? It's convenient. We have a big building. We have, you know, big bathrooms, all that kind of stuff. Why don't we just meet here? Because we're training ourselves for hospitality. We're reminding ourselves that our homes are not our kingdoms in which we protect, which we put signs, no entry, but rather our homes are often the very mission field that God has given us that we love those in our neighborhoods, invite people, that we would get to show them a godly family, a way in which we interact with one another and that they could experience the very grace of God. So I want to encourage you. What would it look like if once a month you began to invite a neighbor, a friend, someone into your house? What could that do? What would that look like? So I encourage you, think about how God might begin to provide opportunities for you to learn more about those who live near you, that you would know how to better love them, better serve them. And as we do that, we'd be amazed at the opportunities we would have to share the love of Christ to others. So I encourage you to think, how can we start opening up our homes on a more regular basis? Yes, to Christians, do that, but also just to those who are around us. We now come to Peter's final instructions, and he tells us, serve others. In verse 10, Peter says, we're to use the gifts that God has given us to serve one another. And just, just to remind ourselves, when you get saved, every single believer is then given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Romans 8 talks about, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, the reason we live radically new lives as Christians is because we have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. And one of the things he does for every single believer is he gives you gifts. He gifts you. When he dwells in you, he gives you gifts. And Peter kind of summarizes all of those gifts, and he says, look, you either have speaking gifts or you have serving gifts. And throughout the New Testament, we, we can read some of the, the gifts that are there, like preaching and teaching, encouragement, administration, evangelism, hospitality, and many, many more. And I think we can all agree, Scripture probably doesn't give us a comprehensive list. There's probably thousands of ways that the Spirit gifts us. If you are saved by Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you've been gifted by the Spirit. The question you might have is, well, how do I know? We don't necessarily need to take spiritual inventory gifts, tests. Maybe you've done that. You could try that. 
But I think the most helpful way and most likely what they did in the New Testament since they didn't have scantrons back then is they actually just got involved in the church and they just started serving, trusting that God would then just direct them and move them to where they should serve. So if you want to know where your gift is, just get involved. Begin helping out as an usher in children's ministry. In so many ways you can get involved and then God will just begin guiding you and leading you into areas in which you will build up the church in incredible ways. But here's the main thing. Peter's point is not necessarily figure out your gift at this point, but what he wants you to see is that gifts are not about your abilities. Look at verse 11. He says, we serve by the strength that God supplies. Gifts are not about your glory. God saves you and gifts you, empowers you that he would be glorified. God's power working in you is what turns ordinary actions into extraordinary acts of grace. Do you get that? It's his power in you that takes normal hospitality, normal words of encouragement. And because the Spirit is working through you, uses those empower extraordinary ways to build others up. So I want you to think. Think about just what we've seen. Think about these four instructions. As Christians, we're to be controlled and clear-minded. We're to persistently love others and to show hospitality without grumbling. As we look at Peter's instructions, some of us might go, that, that's not me. I don't have the gift of hospitality. Or I, I don't love like that. Or I don't have that gift or that gift. But here's the thing. The Christian life isn't about you and your gifts. It's about God and what he's doing in you and through you. That's what Peter wants you to see. This is why it's God that gifts you. It's God that strengthens you so that you would do the things that he commands. He's not saying, go be hospitable. Hopefully you can do that. Rather, he's saying, go be hospitable. It's my strength in you that works in you that you can be hospitable. Because there is often times that we, we will say things like, oh, I don't have that gift. I don't have that gift. But these instructions are given to the church. So yes, you do have the gift of hospitality. There very well might be others who are more gifted than you, but that does not mean you can cherry pick the verses you want to obey or disobey. When we come across clear commands, go be hospitable, it's not for us to say, well, I don't have that one. That's clearly not for this side of the room. It's just for this side of the room. Rather, we go... The Spirit, we, we remind ourselves that the Spirit is in us, strengthening us to accomplish that which he calls us to do so that when we practice hospitality, it's not our name that's great, but who? God's name that would be glorified. To say you can't be hospitable or to love like Peter calls you to is to deny the very power of God that indwells within you. So now, the title of the message is The Heart of a Deacon. So, so we haven't really talked about deacons at all. So we'll kind of bring it back. So what does this mean about deacons? How does all this connect to the life of a deacon? Deacons embody this type of passage. Deacons are those who are known for their service. 
Deacons are those who just stand out within the church. They're not the only ones who serve, but they stand out for their service, for their acts, for their kindness towards one another. Deacons are those who willingly and quickly take low positions like like serving tables in Acts chapter 6 or fixing lights and toilets here at the church or arriving early to prepare communion for the whole church or setting up meals or tables for, for the purpose of the gathering of the church. Deacons are those who open up their homes without grumbling. Deacons are an example of the church on how we serve others and count others more significant than ourselves. Deacons are those who are examples to one another on how we love and serve one another. Deacons encourage the church in their service. Deacons help mobilize the rest of us into service. They're not like next level Christians. We don't go, okay, we're at the Christian level, and there's a deacon level, and then an elder level, and who knows what's after that, super apostle level. Um, in the church, we have Christians. That's the one level. And then in the church, some of us have different roles in how we serve one another and how we lead, but we're all gifted and dwelt by the Spirit for the building up of the church. We're saved by the same Jesus and dwelt by the same Spirit, empowered by the same God. Deacons simply know that the grace that God works in them is powerful and transforms their ordinary acts of service into extraordinary works that build up the church. And they're reminding us that simply by showing up early, encouraging others has eternal significance. By staying afterwards and setting up tables, by by taking meals to one another, ordinary acts of kindness empowered by the Spirit are transformed into extraordinary works that build each other up, that encourage one another, that draw others closer to the very kingdom of God, that remind one another how Christ has served us. And most importantly, deacons remind the church that everything we do is for the glory of God. Everything we do. That's that's really the heart of a deacon, is that God would be glorified with every breath that we take. It's because of our love for the glory of God that we radically serve others. So whether you become a deacon or not, that's not the goal of the message. The goal is is the deacons just simply are an example for us that we would live a life as Peter has described for us here in this passage, a life of godliness, a life in accordance to the very will of God. You have been saved and given the very treasures in heaven so that we are free to live like Christ. And notice what happens at the end of verse 11. Verse 11 ends in doxology. Look at that. He says, he describes the Christian life This is what Peter does. He says, be hospitable, love one another, use your gifts. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Christian life, your life, my life, is not about making our name great, but about showing the glory and the worth of our God. And as Peter thinks about the Christian life, and how it's only possible by the very power of God, he bursts forth in praise. Just think about that. As we come together as a church and we watch one another serve, whether it's the Christian or whether it's the uh, 
children's workers going downstairs, whether it's the ushers who are helping, whether it's the greeters, whether it's, it's in communion, uh, as we're served communion, whether it's through the worship team, through the many ways that we just serve here, we're being reminded of the very power of God that our hearts ought to just burst, for, burst forth in praise, not because we're going, wow, that guy's awesome, that guy's great, love the way they serve, but we're seeing Christ is at work in this church. Praise God, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever Amen. That's one of the reasons we gather as a church. We're reminded of how he works powerfully within us. Our lives are a preview of eternity. It's through our actions we're showing the glory of God is far greater and sweeter than everything else this world has to offer. Why is that important? Because for all of eternity, God's glory is what's going to satisfy us. And if we're not satisfied now with his glory, we certainly will not be satisfied with it for eternity. So as we come here every morning, just through normal acts of kindness, we're showing the very glory of God and moving each other towards praise and how God has worked and saved us. So if you're a deacon here this morning, you remind the church that every Christian is empowered by God to build up the church for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, we just praise you this morning that we are reminded that simply our very coming to church, kind words that we speak to one another, the ways that we serve one another, what might seem to be very ordinary and mundane are yet transformed by the power of your Spirit into extraordinary acts in which you use to build one another up for the very glory of God. Father, you have saved us. You have indwelt us by your spirit. You've gifted us. You've given us power to live a godly life that you would be glorified. God, help us to fixate our gaze upon you that we would love your glory all the more. May our lives be a very testimony to the praise of the salvation that we have received to your good grace, and to your all-satisfying glory. May our actions show that your glory is a greater joy and delight than everything that this world has to offer. Father, we praise you and we thank you. In your name, Jesus, amen.